so while you're continuing to write, the, the first two questions, what's the most important thing in life for you? What do you want to be remembered for? Are the, are the questions of character and legacy? What kind of mark are you leaving on this world? Who are you? What are the, the beliefs, the values, the commitments, the promises that basically shape the person that you are? Max Dupree often says that belief precedes behavior. The beliefs that you hold ultimately shape the behaviors, the actions that you live out. And integrity, of course, is when what you say you believe matches the way you act. So your beliefs, your acted values, your stated values are aligned. When I work with CEO seminars, I have this similar set of questions like this because I want them to understand that the, the beliefs that they bring to their position ultimately are communicated through their relationships of leadership, become embedded in the organizational culture and shape the behaviors of their people. The connection is so clear that I can come to your organization, your company, your home actually, watch the people in that community and have some idea what you believe, what values are shaping your life. Because our values ultimately shape our behaviors. Our character is an expression of what we believe and it defines who we are. The second three questions are questions, <clears throat> what gets you up in the morning? What are you good at? And what do you want to learn? These are the why questions. They have to do with calling. It's about purpose. It's about creativity. It's about your gifts. It's about your contribution. Why do you get up tomorrow morning? Why do you go do what you do? What is it that's driving you? What keeps you moving? If you don't have an answer to that question, then you're on that 13-month path to death because it's that purpose that keeps us going. It's that's the purpose that gives us meaning. And frequently only in church we use language of calling. And so if I'm working with a group that's not in a church, they're a little uncomfortable with calling questions. But I ask them to go back and look over your life journey. What's given you joy and fulfillment? What, what have you learned from your journey so far? What do you think you've been able to contribute? What's been energizing to you? And as you look back, those of us who are believers can say, well, that's how God has expressed our calling in our lives. And as you look back over the journey you've had to date, you can get some inklings of how you might begin to think about your calling for the third third, the second half, the next phase of your life. This is about learning and growth. What do you want to learn next? That, that's an important question. Because if you aren't learning and growing, you're dying. And when, whenever I get tired or depressed, my wife always asks me, so what have you learned lately? And she's right. Because when I start getting moody and depressed, it means I've stopped learning new things. We need to keep learning. We need to keep expanding our minds, our brains. You've got 30 to 40 to 50 more years ahead of you. Think of all the possible things to learn. It's kind of exciting, actually, all the things in front of us that we have yet to learn. What are you good at? This is another important question. What, what do you do well? And part of it is it's important to resilience because if you know what you do well, and you can hang on to that, it gives you the courage to risk learning in areas that you don't know whether you can do it. And so there's certain things we can do. I remember when I was a young graduate student, I was a mountain climber. 
and I'd sit in all these important meetings. I was a young administrator and all these brilliant faculty. Even when I was president at Regent, it was the same thing. I'd sit around that faculty circle at Regent and I and everyone else knew that I was the dumbest person in the room. I just happened to be president, but I wasn't as bright as that faculty that we had. But I could climb mountains and they couldn't. And that makes a difference. If you know what you can do well and can rest on that a bit, then you can take the risk of some other things that you need to learn and to, um, to grow in. What gives you joy and fulfillment in your life? And then self-care and exercise. And I want to come back to that one because how you take care of this person that you are is important to what you will do with your life. So it's, it's an opportunity now for us to reflect back on our journey to date understanding what God has been doing in our life to give us some pointers toward how we might think about shaping the future. The last two questions, with whom do you laugh and weep? Who will be your five best friends in 15 years? That's an interesting one to ponder. And what are you doing now to make that happen, to do anything about that? 15 years ago, uh, I was climbing mountains with this group. There's a group of seven men that we've been climbing mountains together now for 37 years. And 15 years ago, I remember coming to the group saying, you know, this is a really important group. Not only are the mountains something wonderful, but you've all become really important people to me because we've been doing this now for so long. But I want to stay at this long enough to be able to climb mountains together when I'm 70. Well, two weeks ago, I climbed Cirque Peak in the California Sierras on my 70th birthday with that group, and they reminded me of that commitment. <clears throat> and as they pointed out, it's that together relationship and exercise that makes it possible for us to be healthy and to continue into this third third of life. This, this, these questions are about community. What matters to you? Who matters to you? And this may be the most important set of questions because it's your relationships, it's your connections that ultimately are going to determine the quality of the rest of your life. It's, it's the relationships, it's the people that you're sitting around right now, the commitments you make to the people around you. It's the single most important thing, research says, for a healthy life and a healthy aging process. Now, how you answer those questions, and hopefully you'll continue to ponder them, and if you belong to small groups, Test them in your small group. Get people to talk about their journeys with you. How you answer those questions basically is going to define the rest of your life because those are the questions that shape the path that you're on, the way you're going to care for one another, and ultimately the impact you can have on the larger community outside of this church. Two of my mountaineering buddies are uh, psychologists with the Headington Institute. And the, the Headington Institute is a group that works with... Uh, first response teams, like World Vision or AmeriCare or USAID, sends a team into Haiti or Afghanistan or Somalia to, to deal with an international crisis. My friends train them in resilience for dealing with the crisis they're going to encounter and then do debriefing with them, traumatic debriefing, after they come out of the crisis area. And they talk about three critical components that are necessary for resilience in their setting and I believe are necessary for resilience in our living of life. A sense of purpose, 
which we have talked about as calling. What's your purpose? Why are you here? That sense of purpose gives you the resilience to deal with the crisis before you. A sense of character and self-care. Again, it's that confidence. It's that self-efficacy. It's that believing that you have some abilities that allow you to weather the difficult situations. And then it's the social network. And all the research says those three things, purpose, self-efficacy, confidence, and relationships are what makes it possible for us to deal with the ups and downs of life. But they've just added a fourth one to their group, to their uh, list for resilience, and that's physical exercise. And so there should be a question on there that says, what's your exercise plan? Because research shows that as you move into your 60s, your brain, the uh, amygdala, I think it is, no, it's the hippocampus, that contains the spatial memory, your brain shrinks 1% to 2% a year, every year, from your 60s on. And that's the path toward dementia that we're all heading into. But research has shown that if you engage in 40 minutes of aerobic exercise three times a week, brisk walk three times a week, you stop that shrinking process. And in fact, you grow the brain 1% to 2% a year. 40 minutes of exercise three times a week can expand your memory, expand your brain, contrary to the, the normal aging process. Well, that's fairly significant. If you don't do anything else, if you can't think of any other way to help someone, take them for a walk. It'll be good for them and it'll be good for you. You'll expand both of your brains and in the process probably think of some other things that you can talk about and do for one another. Exercise is a critical part. So purpose, what's your purpose? Confidence, community, and exercise, keeping yourself fit. The essence of a sage, basically, is character, calling, and community. It's who you are. Now, my favorite biblical sage is Moses. And I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to have to fly through Moses. We could talk about Moses for a long time. Uh, I love Moses as a biblical leader. And I, I like him because he's a wise sage. I like him because he was a reluctant leader. I like him because he was a mountain climber. And I like the fact that he was really called to all the stuff we give him credit for in the third third of his life. And, and you know Moses' story. I mean, he was, he was abandoned as a child. He was adopted by a wealthy family of a different race. He was educated in the best schools and equipped to be a leader. And then he tries to deal with a social injustice that he sees happening, ends up murdering an Egyptian officer, and has to flee, um, despised by his own people, and now an outlaw, a fugitive from Pharaoh. Spends the second third of his life in the desert, raising a family and building a career as a shepherd. Moses was 80 years old when he saw the burning bush. 80 years old. So he was just at the cusp of the third third of his life. <clears throat> and he sees this bush and he goes up to find out what's going on. And, and I love that, 
I think Martin Buber calls it the great duologue between uh, Moses and God. Because first thing God says is, take off your shoes. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. Well, he was just a shepherd out there with his sheep and a bush is on fire. And God says, no, you're in the presence of God. You're on holy ground. Well, for me, that's a reminder to all of us. Wherever we are with God is holy ground. So take off your shoes right now. You're on holy ground. When you go to work tomorrow, you're on holy ground. When you go home, you're on holy ground because we're in the presence of God. Take off your shoes. Remember, this journey is all made on holy ground. <clears throat> but it's also where he hears the call of God. And God says, go, set my people free. And Moses responds with what for me is just the primal question of leadership. Who, me? Who am I that you would send me to Pharaoh? And it's a pretty legitimate question, given his history and his past. And if you've read the story of Moses, well, you know that when he wasn't asking it, everyone else was. Who are you to tell us what to do, Moses? It's a pretty legitimate question. And God says, wrong question. The question is not who are you. The question is who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to Pharaoh. Follow me. And so the call to go is a call to follow. And I think that's part of what governs the way I think about the third third of life. You have a third third in front of you. We have a second half in front of you. Actually, we have no idea. We could be at the end of it tonight. But we have the next day. And we have told by God, we're called by God to go, but to go and follow. Because God is going to be out there. It will be holy ground you walk on to tomorrow. <clears throat> and the call is to follow and see what God will do with your life. Sinai. And I will just touch briefly. Ten commandments are given. And this is where Moses basically encounters the character of God and learns that the call of God to go to the promised land is really about living out the way of God. The promised land is really a way of living more than it is a place to get to. And so he begins to get the character of God spelled out for him at Sinai. Third mountain that he climbed is the hill over Rephidim. And if you remember that story, the Amalekites are attacking the Israelites. Joshua takes the troops into the valley of Rephidim. Moses goes up on the hill. And as long as Moses' arms are in the air, lifting the Israelites to God, they are victorious over the Amalekites. When Moses' arms comes down, the Amalekites are victorious over the Israelites. And, of course, Moses is only human. He can't keep his arms up. They come down. So Aaron and Hur sit him down on a rock, stand on either side of him, and hold his arms up before God. And Joshua defeats the Amalekites. And I think part of the beauty of that story is this reminder that the call of God is a team effort. It's not a solo performance. You're being called to go out there, and there is a role for everyone. We need one another. We hold one another up before God. <clears throat> and there's this wonderful verse at the end of that passage in which God says to Moses, write this down and make sure Joshua hears it. Well, what's that all about? Write this down and make sure Joshua hears it. Well, Joshua is being mentored as the next leader of Israel. And God wants to make sure Joshua realizes he didn't beat the Amalekites. God beat the Amalekites. God defeated the Amalekites with Joshua the, 
and Moses and Aaron and her. The call of God needs generals and warriors and prayer warriors and arm lifter uppers. There's a role for all of us, and we are necessary together. Moses actually climbed five mountains, and there was two more he should have climbed, but we, don't, we can't go to those. <clears throat> but in the third third of life, Moses heard the call of God after 80. He learned the character of God on Sinai. And he depended on the people of God at Rephidim. And then he died at 120 after being taken up another mountain to Mount Pisgah and being showed the promised land that he didn't get to go to because he actually made a mistake in his leadership journey. And you can go, go read the story of that. But there is one more mountain that shows up, which I think is a beautiful hope for us. Moses shows up with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration in the promised land. So again, this call to go is a call to follow. And even if we blow it, God's going to get to the promised land. And we will have this, this hope that we will be there in the end. And this, this gracious act of restoration for Moses uh, gives us the hope to keep going. <clears throat> Moses died at 120. Mavi Kormod died at 104 just last May. And I include maybe Kermode as one of the stories in the book, partly because I got to know her grandson really well, and we would talk about his grandmother. She was very much a servant of other people. She came out of pioneer stock and had this hardy pioneer character, and she was an avid bridge player. And I thought, oh, that kind of fits my outline. It's kind of interesting. But what struck me about Mavie is after she retired, she had five careers. She was a citrus farmer, and she worked in Simi Valley running a citrus farm with her husband until well into her 50s. And then they sold the farm, moved off, and she left the farm and became a school teacher for about 10 years. And then she retired from that and became a hospital, a volunteer at the hospital for about another 10 years. She retired from that and founded the Historical Society and Park of Simi Valley. And once that got established, she retired from that and then became a volunteer at the public library, a position she held until she was 98, when her family decided that she really shouldn't drive anymore and convinced her to, to stop. So she joined a quilting guild and began to make quilts and teddy bears for the children in the hospital. She never stopped working. She just continued to pour her life out. Her son asked her why, why she did all of this. Does this have to do with her Christian calling? And she answers with this, this great quote. She said, well, whatever life throws your way, just do it. Even though it really isn't up to you, just do it. Don't give up because something's hard. Take care of those around you and do whatever has to be done. We just did what needed to be done. Well, that's calling and character at work in operation. And maybe Kermode was deeply committed to community and relationships. I asked her grandson, <clears throat> um, because I'd seen the character and calling part obvious in the story that I knew, and since I knew my outline included community, I asked her grandson, so tell me about her social relationships, her sense of community. And he sent me a, a copy of the uh, tribute that he gave at her memorial service and then an article in, in the newspaper about her. 
She was deeply committed to community. She was a member of the same church for 85 years and volunteered for all kinds of activities. She belonged to that bridge group for 50 years and met faithfully every week for bridge to the same group of women and then spent 15 years in the quilting group. So she gave the same kind of commitment to relationships that she gave to uh, her volunteer work and using her life. But what impressed me is when I listened, read the tribute that he gave to his grandmother at her memorial service, he also thanked the congregation. And you realize that this community worked both ways. She had poured herself into this community for 85 years, but in the last 10 years of her life, the community poured itself into her. And Frank led a group to re-roof her house. Bill picked her up every Thursday morning and took her to the hairdresser. Dee took her to all of her doctor's appointments. Marilyn stayed with her whenever she couldn't be alone. And the bridge group and the quilting group provided transportation after she could no longer drive. The community was there for maybe just as maybe had been there for the community. In community, oh, thank you. Actually, I have some here, but I'm afraid every time I open it, I'll spell it, but thank you. Now, how to put it down without spelling, okay. <clears throat> in, in community, we need each other and we take care of each other. Part of what I hope you will be doing in SageWorks is thinking about ways that you can get your experience and your story out before one another. So what we do in our small groups is just get people to start telling their story. And as you listen to people tell their story and what they've learned from their journey, you begin to see ways it can cross with your path and things that you can learn from it as well. But what you do in these groups is not just a benefit for your church, it's a benefit for the larger community around you. And just listening a little bit, I didn't know much about your church before coming this morning, but listening this morning and talking to the pastors, I realize how much you do do out in the larger community. But two, um, well, it's only one slide. I, I made a change and didn't, didn't give it to them. Last week, we, we brought Kevin Palau into the Dupree Center to talk about Portland's season of service. And I was very impressed with what a church in Portland was doing for their third, third projects. <clears throat> the, the season of service started about five years ago in which 500 churches in Portland decided that they needed to do something for the common good of the city. And so they went to the mayor and said, we'd like to help the city, what can we do? And the mayor didn't know what to do with 500 churches, but they started talking about it. And out of that came a program in which they decree from May to October a season of service. And the mayor sets out with a planning committee the priorities for the city and then the churches mobilize third, third volunteers and 27,000 people go out to do projects in the city. And one of the ones that caught my imagination, which I understand is not unlike something you do here in North Chicago, was uh, South Lake Church. And South Lake Church was a large affluent uh, urban church or suburban church outside of Portland. And they were, they were growing, they got into this project and they started saying, so what can we do? How might we help? And they saw this school, Roosevelt High School, that was totally in despair, in de disrepair, very dilapidated. Regular enrollment of 1,500 had now dropped down to 450 because 
anybody who could get their kid out of there took them out of there. And so the only ones left were the ones that had no choice. So they decided to adopt the school. And the first day, 1,500 volunteers showed up and they cleaned up everything. They painted, they cleaned, they landscaped, they took over beautifying the campus. They got so enthusiastic then they started doing tutoring, they started doing mentoring, they started being teacher's assistants, they took over the food service, um, they, uh, they, they ran a, a food bank for the families that needed it and a clothing bank out of the school. The school no longer had a football team because the stadium had been condemned years ago. And so the football program had dropped down. So since many of the members of the churches were executives at Nike, they provided all the gear and built a stadium for them. That's now the envy of all of the, the schools in the Portland district. And a former NFL quarterback became the volunteer athletic director for the high school. They've, this partnership's been going on now for about five years to the extent that they were on the campus of the school so much that two of the pastors now are off, officed at the high school and it's been very much adopted by them. The possibilities for a church like yours to take on any project you wanted in the city of Chicago and have a significant impact is huge. And those are all third, third opportunities. Many of them I think you are doing already. Do I have one? Oh, another, another church that worked with the the third third model, John Knox Presbyterian in Seattle. And they were interested, partly they were trying to help me figure out how to test this book and the study guide of the book. But I thought their idea was pretty creative. They put together a first third third group. They found 10 couples. And they had these couples commit to a period of time to work through the exercises in this book together with the view that after they had worked through them all as a small community group themselves, they would all open host third, third groups in their homes. Because if you think, look around your neighborhoods, how many of the people in your neighborhood are entering the third, third of their life? And how many of them have given much thought to what they're gonna do with the rest of their life? This is a very easy and safe, well, safe's the wrong word. This is a very easy way to start a conversation about some very important things. And so all of these people finished that program and then went back to their homes with the view that they would invite the neighbors in to have a discussion about the third third of life. And this, this is not a Bible study in any way. You, all the stories have a distinctly Christian bent to them, but the questions are not in any way threatening or worrisome to non-believers. Non so it's a conversation you could have with anybody. And this church just turned it into an outreach program of the church to begin to tap into people who need to be thinking about the rest of their journey. What you are about is very important. And I hope you will pick up the SageWorks idea and some of you will see that as a calling for your third third and then start calling people together and organizing them. The resources in this room are phenomenal. And every day for the next... 15 years, 10,000 people are going to turn 65 every day. That's a huge amount of Moseses, Maxes, and Mavies that are available as resources, as mentors. And the very fact that you've lived this long makes you a mentor. And if you care about the people who are coming along behind you, 
All you have to do is be an encourager of them and ask them questions that encourage them to make decisions about their life. The potential for mentoring is enormous. And as these people continue to age, as you continue to age, as I continue to age, <clears throat> we're going to need thousands of Joshua's and hers and Aaron's and Marilyn's and D's and Frank's to care for the sages and the wise ones who have been mentoring us for years in our journeys. Mentors, volunteers, board members, caregivers, there are a lot of exciting possibilities from which we can learn and to which we can contribute. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to have a construction license. Both of those would be useful, or a medical degree. All of those would be helpful, but they aren't necessary. The asset that you have is you, your life experience, what you have learned about this journey of life that you have been living before God. You are your greatest asset, and that makes you a sage. Just by, def just by living this long, you're already a sage because you've, you've made it this far. And you have wisdom and you have experience to share. And if you can't think of anything else to do, as I said earlier, just go take someone for a walk. Because that will be good for them and for you. So I hope your experience with SageWorks will renew your own personal calling, will reinforce your character, enrich your community. So take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. And go, set free. Encourage the people of God. Thank you. I want to um, 